Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians. We're reading the second half of chapter 5, together verses 22 through to 33. And this will be the last time we're in Ephesians until the new year, and we'll pick up the last chapter, the last two sections uh, in the new year. As I was startled this week, as I'm sure you possibly were as well, if you get the, the notice sheet emailed out that you saw next week is the first Sunday in Advent, and I'm not entirely sure how the first Sunday in Advent's come around, but we are nevertheless there, so we'll finish Ephesians in the new year. So, Ephesians chapter 5, reading from verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the wa of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And as we come to this, it's an interesting passage for us this week. Perhaps as I began reading those words, there was just that little feeling, that little niggle in the back of your mind that thought, hmm, this doesn't sound like the kind of thing that's going to fit well, sort of very well in a modern 21st century uh, group of people like us. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That sounds dreadful. It sounds like some horrible domineering kind of relationship where a husband is supposed to just tell his wife whatever he wants, and she has to do it. And so our culture sees this passage, and sadly so much of the church sees this passage. And yet, what we find in this passage is that it is a wonderful transforming passage, both for marriage, but also for uh, our relationships within the church. I, I preached once, more than 10 years ago, on, not on this passage, but on a similar one um, in, uh, I think it was possibly in First Peter. I could be wrong about that. Um, it certainly was elsewhere. It wasn't in Ephesians. And um, as part of my introduction, I had read a, a little section out of what was entitled The Good Housewife's Guide, published in 1950-something or other. And it just listed a number of things um, that women should do for their husbands returning home from work. And there was a clear expectation that the wife would have been at home all day um, looking after the children. And really, the wife was to have the children ready and presented for the husband returning home. And don't bother your husband with your idle chatter. He's got far more important things to talk about than whatever uh, rubbish you have to say. So just have everything presented for him and, and make sure that his slippers are ready and all this kind of stuff. And it was the stereotypical kind of good housewife's guide that if I was asked you to list off some things that might be in it, I'm sure you could. You understand. And I, 
had intended, as a, as a young and fairly inexperienced preacher, to present this in a sort of humorous, kind of ironic way that this is how the world sees language like that of Paul's or Peter's. It was a bit unfortunate after, afterwards when we were having tea and coffee and I was chatting to someone who said, you know, you're just absolutely right. We should just go back to that good housewife's guide. And I thought, no, 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 you haven't understood at all. But it was too late. The damage was done by that point. And what can you do? But that is the way the world sees this. That this is out of date, outmoded. So what are we supposed to do? Given this is God's word and we believe it, what do we do with with passages like this. Well, I think what we should do always with any passage of Scripture is to see it in the context in which it was written. We remember that Paul didn't sit down with with a piece of paper and and start at the top, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1, and then go to the end of chapter 1, and then say chapter 2, verse 1, and and so on. He didn't write it like that. He wrote one letter, and it's supposed to flow right the way through. And what we find is that all of the New Testament letters do this to some degree or another, that a subject introduced as the core, the foundation point of the letter is expected to be carried all the way through. And one of the great themes that we've found going through Ephesians is that of love, the love that God first had for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the love that we are to have for God and that we've been redeemed and made aware of God and so we should love him and serve him, but then the love we ought to have for one another. And if you remember over the last few weeks, we've seen how the book of Ephesians is broadly split into two sections whereby Paul outlines the the theology, the theory that sits behind it all, that God has loved you in this way. And then at the halfway point, he says, therefore, because of that, this is how you ought to behave. This is what you ought to do. And so we're reading this in the context of the love that we've read about over the last number of weeks. This selfless, sacrificial love that we're expected to know because we've been shown it, but then go and live out towards one another. So what does a love like that look like in action? One of the interesting things for us as we consider this on the subject of marriage, the family unit, is what we take in, not from God's Word, but from the world around us. We see um, in the news all the time about so-and-so, two celebrities somewhere in America or the UK or whatever else have got married. And if I was to ask you some words that pop into your mind when we say celebrity marriage, what would come to your mind? I suspect longevity is not one of them going the distance, commitment, some, some kind of long-lasting, abiding love together, because celebrity marriages almost by definition have ended virtually before they've begun. And we take this in, and if you've watched, it was, it's one of these bizarre moments where I was sitting and the telly was on in the background, at least that's my excuse anyway, and something like Coronation Street or Emmerdale. I think it was Coronation Street was on in the background. And it's one of these programs that I remember growing up, and so many of the characters you see are still there, still there, decades on, and there are some new ones. But I was, I was speaking to Elaine about it and saying, sorry, as it often happens, and I was, what's going on here? I'm not sure I understand that he's going out with her, but they've got, a children, with, they've got children with them and them over there, and they're married. I, I don't understand what's going on. And when you look at the, the construction of a program like 
Coronation Street or Emmerdale or EastEnders, it turns out that most of the people, most of the characters have been in a relationship with most of the other characters at some point and at the very least have been in a relationship with them and in some cases have six different children with six different people all within the same street and we're expected to believe that this all somehow functions as a community uh, together. But for all that's ridiculous, and we kind of recognize that's a bit ridiculous and a bit sort of contrived artificial. That's what we take in all the time. That is what marriage is. It's something that is fundamentally shaky, flimsy, tenuous. It's all about your desire at the moment, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. There's a neighbor three doors down who will be more interesting for you, and so on. And we absorb this all the time, and it begins to... um, infect our way of thinking, our way of looking at the world, looking at each other, and looking at our families. So in a way, as an antidote to that, because there is really very little difference between our age and the age in which Paul wrote, where relationships could be just as flimsy, just as tenuous as they are today. Paul lays down what God desires for marriage, given that we are supposed to be a people shaped and defined by love. And the first thing that he says is that wives are to submit to their husbands. And so if marriage is going to succeed, if we want to have a successful family and community, we have a number of things that need to be in place. So, if wives submit to their husbands as they submit to the Lord, the family unit will be strong. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, that sounds old-fashioned. It sounds a little bit strange, but to just outline that, what submission means here is supposed to be seen in parallel to the way that you submit to Jesus as your Savior. So for those of you who are married, for those of you who are currently wives, and for those of you who perhaps one day will be wives, you're supposed to look first at your relationship to Christ if you want to understand how you're supposed to relate to your husband. Now, now I get there are a number of things that we need to touch on here, particularly where um, maybe your husband doesn't come to church or, or isn't a Christian, and that makes things complicated. That that does make things complicated, and we'll come to that um, in just a moment. But for the time being, let's think on it like this. Wives submit to their husbands as they submit to Christ. What does submission look like to Christ? It is a kind of life whereby you have given yourself over completely to this other person. You have laid yourself in a very vulnerable way before this person and said, you want to be part of them, connected to them, in relationship with them, such that if they were to, um, to, to, to be selfish about that relationship, to only pursue what they wanted, it would be very, very hurtful towards you because you're vulnerable. You have laid yourself before them in such a way that, that they have complete um, access to your life. Now, the reason that this works with Christ is because we know that Christ only ever wants what is good and right for us, even when we can't see that. And so we can trust ourselves to him completely and fully, knowing that he will never abuse that love, will never do anything that will damage us. That that is not ultimately um, an expression of his love for us and a desire for us to follow um, in his way. 
God created marriage, and it's supposed to work out as an illustration, as a parallel to help you see how much Christ loves you. So as you meet this person that you love and you marry and you spend your your life with, that you are enraptured with this person, so it is that you're supposed to understand how much you are to love Christ. That you should be enraptured with this person who has done far above and beyond anything that you could ever have asked or imagined. He is the perfect person for you. And there are a couple of things in here that I think we should just pause to reflect on very briefly, and that is this, that Women, if you are looking for your husband to be like Christ and to provide for you in the way that Christ does, you are always going to be disappointed because your husband isn't your savior. He might make you feel amazing most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Maybe some of the time. But he's a terrible savior. And he'll admit that himself if he's humble enough. What we desire is a relationship with Christ, that Christ, in a sense, be your husband, that you be the one and he be the one that you rely on, that you come and you, you, you open yourself up to, that, you, that every um, idle thought, everything in your mind, however good or bad it may be, is laid bare before him because he accepts you and he will accept you because he has come to be your savior. So it doesn't matter how much you let him down or fail him, he will never abandon you for a more attractive model down the road. Because that's not how he works. He knew exactly what you were like, warts and all, before you ever knew him. And so if you are going to look for a true satisfying relationship, it is not necessarily found in being married. but it is found in being connected to Christ. Now, all that said, marriage is a wonderful gift given by God, and we should, um, we should be encouraged by that, and we should be encouraged to see it in that way. And we should be encouraged, Paul says here, to, to see your partner as the one who will come and will meet your needs in a, in a practical way, will bless you and encourage you. And a second thing we ought to take from this is Ultimately, that submitting ourselves to Christ means that we are saying, we are confessing that He will lead us in the right way and we will go that way. And so this I'm going to say to women, but actually it's kind of a backhanded comment more to men, and that there is an expectation that the person that you are married to will lead you in the right way as a parallel of this relationship with Jesus. And that is our desire, that should be your desire as you seek a husband. If you are not yet married, that you have someone who will lead you the way that Jesus wants you to go, because that is the ultimate goal of marriage, that it points you towards Christ and not just the other person, as wonderful as that person might be. And so we want to make that a priority because our life together will be bound around Christ, will be bound around Jesus himself, and we want someone who's going to be pulling in the same direction, focused on the same end. Now, to men, the implication of that is you ought to be leading your wife towards Christ. And we're going to come on and see how we'll do that shortly, but that expectation is huge <laughs> and will not come by passively just just being there, not being a pain in the neck week in, week out, as good as that would be and as much as your wife would love that. That's not the goal. The goal is that you help your wife to grow closer to Jesus. And the goal of being a wife is having a a husband who will lead you in that way, who will be the head of the house in a spiritual sense, pointing you always to Jesus as Jesus himself points you towards his heavenly Father. And so wives are to see um, not just their submission to Jesus, but, but, but 
their submission together as part of the church to Christ as the way in which they relate to their husband. Paul just assumes that this is going to be the case. And we remember he's writing to Christians, and so the the basis for a wife's submission to her husband is that she first submits herself to Jesus. And that makes sense. If she's submitted to Jesus, she will want to, to follow in the way that he's set before her, that this will be the best way. This doesn't mean that a wife is to be a doormat to her husband. For the husband is the head of the the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. How does Christ treat the church? He builds the church up and equips the church for the work of ministry and releases the church into the world to go and be his body, to be his people in the midst of a world that doesn't know him. He entrusts the church to that end, and so it is with the marriage relationship. Submission doesn't mean just be trampled on and just do whatever you're asked, regardless of how demeaning um, and, and how frustrating that might be for you. That's not the relationship. The relationship is your husband builds you up and encourages you to express your gifts and your abilities and your skills and use them first in the marriage relationship, but also in the wider context of the family and the church and the world. There is no doormat here because the church is not a doormat of Jesus, who he tramples over and comes home at tea time and just you know, demands to have his dinner on the table, and why haven't you done that? And I want to watch what I'm watching on the telly. You're not getting to watch what you... That's not what Jesus' relationship with us is like. It's one of, of love and care. He gives us what is necessary and denies us what would be damaging. And so is the expectation of the wife um, on her husband, that he will cause her to flourish and to thrive and to grow as a Christian woman in the home and in the world or the workplace, or wherever it may happen to be. And we find then that the parallel part to that, we have this model of the church's submission to Christ as the the means by which the wife is to, to see her relationship with her husband. But the husband is then expected to love their wives first, as Christ loved the church. And if husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church, the marriage will flourish. I know that sometimes marriages don't flourish, even when one party is striving very hard to do these things, you know, depending on which side of the the equation you stand, whether you're a husband uh, or you're a wife, and and Paul is not ignorant of that. This is not a guarantee if you live this way, all will be well, but this is Paul's explanation that this is what God sees as, as being the best in marriage, and if you will both live this way, your relationship will flourish and thrive. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, on the surface, it sounds like a pretty good deal for the husbands. Wives have to submit to you You just have to love your wife, that's fine. But when you hear what Paul is saying, you realize that husbands, far from getting the light side of the deal here, actually have a far greater weight of responsibility on them. And this is not in any way to diminish the role of the wife in the marriage relationship. How do you love somebody like Christ loves the church? That's a massive statement. And it's something which constantly challenges and absolutely terrifies me in my own marriage that I think, have I even come close to modeling this? I mean, this is such a high standard, it's unbelievable. 
That I'm supposed to love Elaine in the same way that Jesus loves the church. That Jesus forsakes the glory of heaven. He has everything he could have ever needed perfectly satisfied in his surroundings. Forsakes that. Comes to earth. Goes through the whole process of being born and living out his life. Growing in his understanding and developing in his maturity and and so on, suffering all of the frustrations and the anxieties, the upset of life, of um, having family, of losing family, of losing friends, and so on. He goes through all of that. Then he dies willingly for a group of people who don't want to know him and have no interest in what he has to say, but he does it anyway. And then having raised them up, then goes with them forever, constantly equipping them and calling them to follow in the way that he's asked them to go in the first place, that they keep wandering off from. And you get a picture of this in the Old Testament. Um, we went through in, in Cowdenbeath not all that long ago, a short sermon series um, on Hosea. Hosea is, is a, fan, a fascinating character, but he is called upon by the Lord as a demonstration of God's love for his people to go and marry a prostitute. Now, that seems like a pretty tall order. That's a big ask by God to go and do that because she keeps running off and going back to her life of prostitution. And so this poor prophet has to go traipsing after this woman and buy her back constantly from the, from the marketplace where she goes to sell herself. He, the shame and the humiliation, and yet God says to us, yeah, I want you to do this as a demonstration of just what my relationship with you is like. You keep wandering off, and I keep buying you back. And the expectation is that God's people will see that there will be an end point where there will be one final payment made so that the bride has been purchased and will always be with the groom. And that is what Jesus comes and does. He pays the price. And says, it is finished. It's been paid for. It's done. There is no more price that needs to be paid. You're mine. And this will be the most wonderful, glorious life and relationship you can ever possibly imagine. That you didn't even want. Because you didn't know. But now you do. And you see. That is what a husband's love for his wife is supposed to be like. Long-suffering, patient, kind, always seeking the other's good and, and, and equipping and, 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 and edification, to use a sort of fancy-sounding word that means the same thing, just constantly seeking to build her up because he loves her and has been called to love her. This casts a different slant on our marriage, uh, the way that we see marriage, doesn't it, from the way culture expects us to understand marriage, where it's all about this kind of sentimental Valentine's Day card sort of lovey-dovey kind of love. That it's a sort of glandular condition. It's the, it's the way that our hormones make us feel and that's it. And when we fall out of that kind of way of feeling, then we just move on with somebody else. That isn't this, is it? Not even close. This is a love that persists and persists. And wrong might be done against you, and yet you constantly persist and pursue. Not such a great deal, perhaps, for husbands, as we contrast it to that of wives. Actually, they're both exactly the same. There is no better or worse deal here. There is simply the the way God calls us to be. Husbands, are you doing everything you can to make sure that your wife is as holy and as um, loving a child, a daughter of God as she can be. You can't make her be that person, but are you doing everything you can to encourage her in that way? 
I find I love church history, and one of the things I love reading about in church history is Scottish church history. And just after the founding of the Church of Scotland, the establishment of the Church of Scotland as the church for the nation after Catholicism was shoved aside, as it were, by the reformers coming in and the Protestant church became the state church, a minister's manual was written to guide Church of Scotland ministers on how to conduct their ministry, roughly what ministry should look like week by week and so on. And this written in the 1500s, fascinatingly, in light of this, says this, if you as a minister, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because it's written in the English, but if you as a minister find or become aware of a man, a husband in your congregation that is not at the very least weekly leading family worship in his home, that man should be publicly disciplined in front of the church. On Sunday morning, he's taken up the front, everybody sees who he is and is made aware that he is not performing the duties of a husband with his wife to make sure that she and your children are growing up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, growing up in the Christian faith. Now that rightly should terrify you. <laughs> that absolutely terrifies me, and yet that is how serious the Church of Scotland took the family unit, the relationship between husband and wife. If you're not going to do this, we will shame you to the point where you will do it the very next day, because <laughs> this isn't on. God gave you this woman. She is his daughter, your bride to look after and nurture and care for, and that's how you're going to treat her. You're not going to care about whether she's growing in her faith. Not happening. I'm not suggesting that we implement this policy in any way um, as a church, but it, but it should help us see the, the nature of a loving relationship, love in action. We love our wives like Christ loves the church. And so, to look back now to women, women, is this what you desire in a husband? Is this what you will pursue if you are not married in a husband at some point? Someone who will lead you in that way? Are you going to be satisfied with anything less than that? Because Paul says you shouldn't be satisfied with less than that. This should be your primary concern. Look, there's going to be plenty of really gorgeous looking guys that you're going to meet at some point who are going to think the world of you. But if they're not going to lead you in this way, Paul says, this is the number one. You want someone who's going to lead you and nurture you in this way, not because he is like Christ to you. He's not your savior but because he should be pointing you towards your Savior, because he loves himself. Every person loves themselves, ultimately. Now, we might say, I know some people who don't really like themselves very much, and they punish themselves in all sorts of ways. I get that. But at the end of the day, what Paul is talking about here is not some prideful arrogance where you think you are the most supreme being that God has ever created and you're God's gift to the opposite sex and whatever else. That's not what he's talking about. When he says that husbands love themselves, what he's talking about is husbands will, as every human being will do, constantly look out to protect themselves and preserve their own life. They'll do whatever is necessary to make sure they survive and see tomorrow. That is what he's talking about here. A husband loves his body. He's not going to intentionally go and, and you know, damage himself unless there is something very seriously wrong, in which case we need to address that. But, but generally speaking, a man will look after himself to see tomorrow. 
And so if he's going to do that for himself, the very least he should be doing is making sure that that is being done for you because he loves himself and so you are connected to him, which is why Paul quotes from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Because if you're a husband and you're looking after yourself, by extension you should be looking after your wife because she's part of you and whatever damages her damages you. Now our culture doesn't see it that way. You're separate individuals, so do what you want. And yeah, you're going to hurt your spouse from time to time, but hey, you need to look after number one. It's not how it works. Looking after one means by necessity building up your wife. And so it is with wives towards their husbands, because you're one flesh, and what hurts one will hurt another. If wives will submit to their husbands, if husbands will love their wives, then love in action will define you. This cannot be, if you'll excuse the, the pun, divorced from the, the relationship between people within the church. It, it must be seen in light of our relationship together because we are a family together, united, and what hurts one little family together has an impact on the whole congregation. Marriage isn't simple. Being connected together in Christ isn't easy and and straightforward because we're messy people. And if we're going to get it right in the home, so the likelihood increases that we will get it right in the church. That's why Paul and Peter and, and many of the biblical writers stress the utter significance of the relationship between the husband and the wife, and then parents and children, and children and parents and so on, because what exists in the home percolates through into the church. If your relationship is dysfunctional at home, it will be dysfunctional at church to some degree or another. I'm not saying you're going to be a complete wreck in church because things aren't going right at home, but the likelihood increases that that relationship will just be carried through because that is how you relate. And so if we want love to define our congregation, if we want people to look at our church and to to say to other non-Christian people, you know, whatever else we might say about what those folks believe, they really love each other. And this is what must exist in the home. This is what must exist here together. Paul says, look, I'm talking about the relationship of Jesus and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband because all of that goes somewhere. It doesn't just stop at your front door before you step out down the path as you leave each day. We've looked at some instructions for marriage that appear on the surface just to be about marriage. But ultimately, the reason Paul has written these instructions is because marriage is an institution created by God for the building up and the blessing of His people together as one people. So let each one of us love our husbands, love our wives as themselves. Let husbands and wives respect each other. And let's our relationship together mirror the love that we experience and express at home. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness in providing marriage. And Lord, we do confess that marriage this morning is not something that everybody will enjoy. Lord, some people are set apart and, and will live a single life. And Lord, that is no less a life that glorifies you than the married one. It is simply different. Lord, may we see that there, is, that there is far greater significance in the relationship we have with Jesus, our Savior, than with any other human being. So whether we are married or whether we stay single, what matters most is our relationship with Christ. 
If we have him, we will never be forsaken, never be alone, never ultimately left and abandoned. Lord, our relationship with you matters far more than anything else. But Lord, for those that are married and for those that one day will be, Lord, we pray that you would bless us with an ability to submit to our husbands. Lord, to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, that we might make Christ known in the relationship at home, that we might model it for our children and for our grandchildren, that we might make it known in the fellowship here in the church. Heavenly Father, I pray that women would take seriously that need, Lord, to to rely on their husbands, And Lord, that husbands would take with incredible seriousness that need to bless and equip their wives. Lord, this is no outmoded, Lord, old-fashioned view of marriage. This is how marriages are to thrive and to bless all those involved. So, Lord God, we pray that you would bless us in this way. Lord God, we pray as well for men and women in our fellowship who have experienced loss and bereavement, that that their spouse is no longer with them. Lord God, we pray that you would meet them in their need and that Christ would be sufficient for them, that they would know your presence through Jesus with them. Lord God, we pray for men and women in our fellowship who don't have a a Christian spouse at home, and Lord, we ask that you would bless and encourage them, that they might be a constant witness through the way that they live, through the love they have for that husband, for that wife, that they might in every way seek to live this out as far as possible at home. But Lord, that they might make that relationship with Jesus the preeminent one and make him known in the home also, Lord, that their spouse may indeed turn to Christ at some point in the future. Lord God, these are difficult things to talk about because relationships are messy, we are messy. And yet, Lord, you are aware of it all, and yet call us to this standard, a high standard. So, Lord God, we pray, help us to submit to your word. Give us understanding, wisdom, and strength, Lord, that we might honor you in our homes as well as in our gatherings week by week. Lord God, we ask all of this in our Savior's wonderful and mighty and, above all, loving and gracious name. Amen.